This podcast is on transnational and subnational governance, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. But first to the readings. Last month, I added uh, to the readings a chapter by Gelnor. Although the current supplementary readings by Weiner, a legal scholar, and Diamond, an anthropologist, are interesting, especially interesting if you've read them before and now can apply what we've learned in IWS to reflecting more deeply on those texts, I thought Gellner reading more important to understanding a backdrop to the global power competition. The canvas across especially Southwest Asia, much of Africa, much of Latin America, where Russia and China and others try to compete for economic military influence. I believe that we should have a superior understanding of the interactions of informal and traditional governance systems with formally recognized governments, the strengths and vulnerabilities of both. Now, this is not to say that Gellner or any author has the last word, so please understand Gellner's background, his scholarly focus, and thus his shortcomings, possible shortcomings, of understanding legitimate tribes, tribal structures, clan-like entities, and his possible, perhaps, overgeneralizations. In our last lesson, we had a very influential article by one of our country's top guerrilla warfare and stabilization experts, a scholar, an operator, a commander, and an original designer of actual strategic stabilization campaigns that ran across continents. His strengths were clear, and he did not pretend to be a scholar of Hadith. And thus, we must read with healthy skepticism his claims of a Hadith that is widely and absolutely debunked. Although, to be fair, it was the popular misperception of legitimacy of this very weird, if you will, Persian and Khorasani passage that was important and not the efficacy of the actual debunked verse. If you don't know what I'm referring to, uh, just ask me in plenary. This was a discussion offline after the plenary in the last session that we had. So no worries if, if you think this is coming out of left field. I certainly can explain. Bottom line is we need to look at our authors with healthy skepticism. We need to know their strengths. We need to understand that they're going to have some vulnerabilities or weaknesses in their texts with their logic or perhaps with their methodologies. All this to say that even with Gellner, please read again with healthy skepticism, with our eyes wide open to his potential prejudices and limitations. I'm especially interested in the insights of our brothers who hail from the Middle East and live the subject of Gellner's chapter. We don't have to prepare anything. You don't have to prepare anything for plenary, but I will certainly want to hear your own insights and perspectives, and I look forward to plenary. So in this lesson, this is a continuation of the final third of the course, which takes what we learned about information and great power competition and then information and leadership, those were our February lessons, to better analyzing and navigating the global information environment. We looked first to the study of strategic intelligence writ large. Then we studied intelligence analysis. Then we honed in even further on population analysis. Dr. Sutherland led us all into our focus or towards our focus on people and behavior. And that while foundational narratives, as we discussed in September, and our deep-seated ideologies and biases and views of the world may have an outsized influence on our subconscious, our goal at the end of the day, as is the goal for much of strategy writ large, is behavior changed or behavior unchanged. It's not necessarily in cognition, it's actually on behavior. We then went on to specific type of population analysis, and that is the population analysis conducted in strategic stabilization missions. 
One of the main points in our study of stabilization was this idea of governance, not to be confused with only a formal government. In this lesson, we will hone in further on that point, governance systems, legitimacy, and power, and how this can help us both analyze and navigate the global information environment. In short, we are getting more and more specific from the study of intelligence to honing in more specifically on intelligence analysis, to honing in even more specifically to population analysis, to honing in even more specifically to population analysis amid stabilization, to now honing in even more specifically to our study of governance, a central idea of stabilization. Now, for those in my electives or those that have attended uh, conferences of mine in the last year or have read my most recent book uh, or my most recent uh, chapter in another book that came out in December, um, don't worry, I will not be repeating myself except for a bit, a little bit in this podcast, uh, although go deeper on some points that I haven't gone, uh, that you haven't been exposed to yet, at least at NDU. So instead of looking to influence and subversion, much of my publications, my electives are focused on those, we are expanding our view of all informal governance systems, so that's across countries and within countries, as they impact the global information environment. So similar subject matter, but a thoroughly fresh perspective and a much more strategic perspective. The title, Trans, uh, Transnational and Subnational Governance, was shortened. That's the title for this lesson. What it refers to, as I said earlier, is informal and traditional governance systems outside the realist Westphalian world. I will, in this podcast, and I'll explain it in a minute, use the word clan and clanism very broadly. When narratives fail to upload an imagined societal construct that we talked about that first week of September, that has allowed the kingdoms and empires and states to prosper, some populations may revert back to clan or clan-like entities. Imagine communities unified by abstract stories that allow millions of strangers to share similar outlooks and beliefs, give way to narratives that bind natural communities in which people know one another personally. Now, this may sound preposterous to some, to those who believe the world is bound towards a global community or to those realists who believe that governments do or should monopolize violence within their borders, or to those that feel liberalism and protection of the individual or paths humanity must walk to distance ourselves from clan-first phenomena. But when states collapse, when they fail, when they weaken, or purposely allow subnational entities relative self-determination, clanism emerges. Even within a government, institution-heavy state system or global community, clanism sometimes lies beneath and weaves within governance systems in a number of ways. And these pre-kingdom, these pre-empire, these pre-state societies wield narratives and constructs to bind a more modest number of people. When studying weak states or civil society in general, one must necessarily then study the narratives that drive and allow subnational systems. There are a number of differences and similarities between clan society and contract society. Contract society refers to a rule of law, oftentimes, and protection of the individual. Clans here refer to subnational groups in the broadest sense, bloodline, geographic, and or fictitious cohesion, and may perhaps cover many various identity, identities with ebbs and flows of strength. I do not just mean bloodline clans, clans that we find at the subtribal level, in the Middle East, for example. I'm using, for purposes of this lesson, 
and a much more expanded definition of clans to include clan-like entities and clanism values than may be found even in non-clan societies. Clan narratives define much of mankind outside ancient empires and most of the world until the dawn of history. And clanism describes underlying drivers of some individuals and communities throughout the world today below the level and sometimes across formal states. It is, after all, possible for someone to have layers of identity as a citizen of a state, as a religious devotee, devotee, and as an active member of a tribal community. Even today, it's important to understand the vestiges of the driving narrative of the quote-unquote rule of the clan, according to Professor Jared Diamond. And, I, and the quote follows from Jared Diamond. Billions of people today still live in a partly traditional ways, embedded even within modern industrial societies, are realms where many traditional mechanisms will operate. Many disputes are still resolved by traditional informal mechanisms rather than going to court. Some scholars argue that clan-like behavior can be found prominently in the ganglands of East Los Angeles, in Indian megacities, Ozark and Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains, mafia, influence parts of Sicily, collectivist agricultural societies that put the group before the self and rely on cooperation, pastoral societies such as we find in the uh, Andes, Imara, uh, in Arabia's Bedou, uh, North Africans Tureg, and North Scandinavian Sami people, and the islands, jungles, deserts, mountains, valleys, and other rural communities, environments on that we find on six continents. So the behavior can also be found throughout governments and militaries. Um, some governments, even today, find it logistically difficult, if not impossible, to govern secure, securely and completely their countries. So transportation challenges alone may compel some states to allow a marriage of traditional local rural governance and security and state apparatus. Some state heads have found it difficult, if not impossible, to encourage tribal systems of clan-like communities to surrender completely their authority and ideals of stability that the local backlash at forced federal incursion, uh, such as family law and local police, may not be worth the effort. So for example, Saddam Hussein formally reached out to tribal and sub-tribal leaders following the post-Gulf Wars, the first Gulf War, 1991 uprising. After over a decade of attempting to erase clanism, uh, and that he thought as antith uh, antithetical to modernity, to nationalism, his ideas of nationalism, and to absolute control, Saddam saw his government come inches from demise. That's following or at the last uh, hours of the uprising following the 1991 war. So much so that U.S. intelligence reports at the time predicted his likely ouster. Of course, they were wrong. Saddam then swi swiftly transformed his philosophy and governing systems to rely on tribes and clans throughout Iraq to maintain security, day-to-day -day rule of law, and border control, much as the Ottomans did from the cities of Basra, Baghdad, and Mosul. Meticulous ledgers spelled out monthly payoffs, deals, projects such as schools, and other incentives to create a power sharing not unlike the way British-backed monarch ruled in the early days of Iraq post-World War I. Saddam went beyond just paying off claimed bloodline clan elders and communicated with and empowered those within the tribes uh, that held the most power and sway, even if those individuals were not necessarily considered um, traditional leaders. So he went to the sub-clan level, if you will. 
At the state level, clans and informal groups may be important to the constituencies of political leaders, from the Philippine Islands to rural Afghanistan to western Iraq today, to mountainous near city areas of the U.S., the jungles of Latin America, to the major cities of Western Africa and the Asian subcontinent. There are also hybrid states where there exists both clan society and emphasis on legal protection of the individual, sometimes both written directly into law, as is the case with the 2004 um, Constitution of Afghanistan. Clan identities become important in understanding weak central government institutions, uh, such as with some areas of Mexico and Guatemala, Guatemala's many drug trafficking organizations, also known as cartels, strongly governing swaths of territory, as well as perhaps southern Somalia's many warring bloodline clans, extremists, and criminal organizations. When states fail, the clan may become the most important governance, security, and development structure. Even in countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, as the strength of clanism rises and falls throughout history, people tend to go back to their tribal composition during times of failed, or at least weak, central governments uh, and crises. During regional and international negotiations, it's important, I think, to understand tribal impulses. Even those that are heads of states and multinational corporations, they may have tribal impulses that may drive some people more towards a clan-like societal mentality, such as holding honor as more important than some standard lawful diplomatically diplomatic norm. As uh, Professor Mark Weiner notes, grasping this impulse and appreciating the range of forms it takes, and he's talking about clanism, if you will, are vital to solving a surprisingly long list of foreign policy challenges. An example of clan-like restorative justice was the Seville inquiry decades after the Bauxite massacre that's in 1972 in Londonderry, where 13 Northern Ireland civilians died. Uh, time permitting, we'll be able to go more deeply into this case study in seminar. So failing to understand tribal narratives when we assume narratives are more than stories and offer or reflect meaning and purpose and identity, if we go back to those um, that uh, at the end of the first week in September, failing to understand those tribal narratives has caused the collapse of empires and armies. Military leaders have often assumed tribal elders are akin to commanding officers or chief executive officers, but in reality, many clan or clan-like leaders are the first amongst equals. Rarely command clan members, except perhaps for certain emergencies, often do not own land, often cannot speak for his clan on many matters, and often cannot negotiate lands or treaties, and often do not attend army or government-led negotiations, committees, or conferences. The, the following are some common strategic fallacies that governments have made historically regarding clans. One, naming a tribal elder in the hopes that he would somehow magically be respected by clansmen because of his government-designated leadership title. Two, assuming whoever shows up to a government negotiation is a tribal elder indeed, when in fact the person who shows up may not represent his tribe at all. Sometimes clans purposely send someone without even cultural importance as a deception. Three, assuming that a large tribe is somehow a unified society, when in fact a super clan, if you will, may be more akin to many nations without a central leader. Four, comparing a clan militia to a military unit, when in fact militiamen may each act with staggering individuality and self-interest. It may even seem to be a platoon of colonels, if you will, and that's my own wording. Five, 
assessing young people as unimportant when in fact some clans in some locations ordain young adults to be spiritual, battle, or moral leaders. Next, viewing an area as tribally waning because of a strong government, and then suddenly being surprised at how quickly clans reconfigure or resurrect to drive out outsiders with rare determination and will. And this happened a lot in places in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other areas where U.S. commanders were briefed that clanism or tribalism was waning, was weakening, and they show up and are very surprised that there is a very strong clan society, not like what was described pre-deployment. Seven, thinking that a clan might have a similar concept of land as that of a government. Eight, believing that a person who is a clan expert in one area might have any idea about what unifies, strengthens, or drives tribes elsewhere in the world. As the Afghan, Afghanistan adage goes, if you've seen one village, you've seen one village. In other words, what is true for one town regarding tribal structure and strength may prove untrue even for a neighboring area. It's especially untrue for another area of the world. Nine, believing another honor-based clan society defines honor the same as you is a mistake. Honor may mean many things to many tribes, and tribal honor may be quite different than how it is defined, that is how honor is defined, for example, amongst business people in Tokyo or Bogota, or you might find in the officer corps of the military in a strong country like Estonia. And lastly, misunderstanding that some clans view vengeance as not a principle, but a compulsory practice. Many empires and states have attempted to stem insurrection in rural areas only to face an ever-growing tribally-led revolt. If the state has accidentally killed a person from one tribe, from one clan confederation, in some cases in some areas, and during some periods of history, those clans may feel that vengeance against that state's military and all the soldiers is not just a value, if you will, it's obligatory. So perhaps in some cases, states should attempt restorative justice when appropriate. So in conclusion, trying to tie these very disparate points together and in preparation for your reading and in preparation then for plenary, I want us to think back to the cognitive revolution we talked about in September, how it laid the foundation of imagined constructs to build societies larger than tribes. And there's a big asterisk next to this. And that is to ignore, still, even today, to ignore clan and clan-like narratives amidst a global society, I think is foolish. We don't operate in just a realist world of only state systems. There's the world in theory, the world how we wish it was, and then the world how it is right now. Understanding this provides us a massive advantage over the Kremlin and Beijing, who have, some would argue, a vested interest in the state controlling everything and recognizing strong states abroad that may not give credence to the realities and complexities of informal, 